And so there's a theological position, but there's our ministry position, which contains our philosophy of ministry. And that, that philosophy includes our theology and the outworking of it. And so I've wrestled for a long time here, Tim. Finally, June has arrived at last, and you know what that means, especially if you're part of the LGBTQ community. Yes, you guessed it, it's Pride Month. Get ready to hear and see a barrage of messages exhorting you to join the party. And there is no shortage of debate leading up to this month, and even some ardent pushback. Take, for example, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, a group of drag queens whom the Dodgers decided to feature in honor of Gay Pride Month. The Dodgers reversing course after backlash from fans, elected officials, and members of the LGBTQ plus community. The team has officially reinvited the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence to its June 6th Pride Night. Or how about the Target Store debacle regarding the release of their new trans wear, especially the male trans tuck swimsuit line? Fortunately, saner voices are prevailing as courageous people and especially burdened moms are calling out these corporations and calling them to higher ground. Time will tell if their efforts make any lasting change, and we can only hope so. While so much of the LGBTQ plus comes at us year round, the intensity only escalates in June. And yet, how should the church respond to this movement? What should our posture be? And what is the way forward? In today's episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense, I'm joined by Dr. Bobby Conway for a conversation to address our response to Pride Month. So stay tuned as we dive into some controversial waters, or shall I say, suit up, of course not in your new trans target tuck suit, but suit up intellectually for a dialogue on all things LGBTQ+. Bobby, now I bet many of our listeners are curious as to the origins of Pride Month. So where did it all begin? Yeah, hey, I, I'm glad to answer that. I'm still trying to get past uh, people not suiting up in their Target tuck suits. Yeah, uh, I never thought we would live in this kind of time. Very interesting. Uh, but leaving on, I'm glad you didn't ask me to describe the tuck suit. Uh, we, will, we will leave that for, 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 you know, more creative minds to figure out. Right. Tim? Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but in answer to your question, uh, pride month, uh, you know, we hear those terms, but we don't often ask, you know, what's the origin of this? Uh, let's harken back to June, 1969. Uh, there were several days of riots uh, that were taking place for gay rights. Uh, and these were known as the Stonewall Riots. And these riots took place in New York after police invaded a gay bar known as the Stonewall Inn. As these riots spread, they sought to capitalize on the momentum with annual parades. But it was in 1999, in June of 99, that President Clinton officialized uh, gay pride month and it was a month devoted to parading all things gay at first it was just the l the g and the b and the t was resisted but later accepted of course the acronym stands for lesbian gay bisexual transgender and the q for queer and the plus sign uh, really just stands for whatever's next in other words there is no moral boundaries anything goes except for you know the traditional standard explanation that there's just a male and a female uh, there is great controversy though amongst the l 
uh, the lesbians and the T, the transgender, especially uh, with trans males seeking to compete in female sports. We're seeing this controversy really uh, get heated up. Well, again, this is something that has uh, has grown steam, but it has uh, a surprising velocity. In your opinion, what has paved the way for the LGBTQ plus community to grow with such veracity? Yeah, you're right about that, Tim. I've never seen a movement grow with such speed. I mean, it's literally changing the landscape of our country. We know that we're in the midst of some sort of revolution, a sexual revolution, Uh, of some sort, but we don't realize uh, the ramifications of everything until the dust settles from this cosmic quake that we're experiencing. While there are many factors that have been at work to create this movement, I think my initial thoughts would be obviously Pride Month itself has contributed as it's mounted support through the decades uh, since its origin. I would also say uh, other contributing factors Um, It's the perfect storm. I mean, you've got all kind of all the main pieces of society rallying behind this movement. So you have the entertainment industry and you hear about, uh, you know, the LGBTQ community. It it shows up in music, Hollywood films. I can remember when Brokeback Mountain came out. I mean, that was a big film, but everything about the film through the music, uh, through the storyline, it was not so much interested in what is truth, but basically making our emotions softened to the experience that people have, which I understand that, but we also have to remember what our worldview teaches as Christians. Uh, I think another aspect is a liberal academia. Uh, you know, when you think of like universities, it's astounding how much uh, of the woke, uh, you know, philosophy has penetrated that realm. A big corp, for instance, you mentioned Target um, or the Dodgers. Uh, we've seen this all over the place uh, with big corporations trying to, you know, show uh, their support for basically the LGBT, LGBTQ plus community. I mean, Starbucks in particular, uh, media. Uh, we can see it, uh, you know, on your ultra left wing uh, news outlets. And in even more so, you're seeing it show up on conservative outlets. I mean, it's really that influential. Politics, I mean, ever since Obergefell uh, with the legalization of same-sex marriage in 2015, I think public education, I talked about kind of your college institutions, but even more so, think about your public school systems. Uh, You have lots of growth in the homeschool movement because people don't trust that they can send their kids to school without being indoctrinated in this way. And then, of course, there's social media, Tim, uh, which I really believe is the biggest instigator and uh, propeller of this movement. Yeah, definitely. Well, maybe we gave people a little bit of a heart attack on purpose, maybe by the title of this episode. And so I want you to kind of, uh, you know, concede at the outset that your theological position hasn't changed, but what has changed? That's correct, Tim. I mean, I want everybody to know that it's your fault to subject me to the cruelty of having people wonder whether or not I've actually theologically changed, but it was good clickbait. So I went with you on that. Uh, No, my position has not uh, changed at all theologically regarding sexual um, ethics and what the Bible would teach there. I'm 100% where I've always been. Uh, I'll even state it. I believe the Bible teaches that sex is reserved for marriage between a man and a woman, 
and there's only two genders, male and female. So while my position hasn't changed theologically, it has developed in the way that I think about how to contextualize it practically. And so there's a theological position, but there's our ministry position, which contains our philosophy of ministry. And that, that philosophy includes our theology and the outworking of it. And so I've wrestled for a long time here, Tim. I've wrestled wondering how can the church reach people within the LGBTQ community yet without compromising our belief. So my heart, it goes out to those who are wrestling through various identity issues related to their sexuality, but my head can't compromise the truth I see in God's word. However, we still have a responsibility to connect God's word to people's hearts, even people within the LGBTQ community. So, uh, again, you're very clear. Your theological position hasn't changed, which I'm sure, again, that helps relieve uh, several people. But can you expound more on what you mean by your thinking has evolved regarding the contextualization of your theological beliefs to reach people or to influence people or people that are influenced by the LGBTQ community? Uh, Unpack this a little bit more for us. Sure. Okay, well, here's some thoughts. First, I've switched up in my preaching Uh, in the presentation style in that I'm not trying to preach to the choir. That is, I can get up and I can speak to, uh, you know, straight people and, you know, heterosexuals can hear me and they can uh, hear me talk about what the Bible has to say and the truth of it. And I can get amens from Christians in that way. But if we're trying to reach people who are engage in the LGBTQ community and they show up at our church and we're not focused on reaching them, but getting amens from the choir, from the audience, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, we might, you know, give confidence to our flock that we believe what the Bible has to say, but we don't give confidence to people within the LGBTQ community that we can shepherd them through their insecurities, through their questions. So they hear the truth, but they leave feeling shamed, unloved, and perhaps unwanted. Hmm. Anybody can get amens from the crowd, Tim. Uh, But can we speak without compromise and yet see LGBTQ people return to the church? And that's what I would want. So this means that my ministry approach is to start with the person and then bring them to my theological point. So that would look like this for anybody that's engaged in a teaching kind of ministry of the Bible, that you think about the potential that you've got somebody who is part of the LGBTQ community and they've showed up at your church and they're not a believer and you want that person to come back, yet you don't wanna compromise what the Bible has to say. How are you going to, uh, you know, put that conversation together? Well, it's going to be really important that we can say statements like, you know, I can't imagine what it would feel like if you're out here, you know, you come to church today and I'm sure that took a lot. You might have had some fears wondering if you're going to be rejected. We want you to know that we're glad that you're here. We stand by what the Bible has to say on this matter, but uh, we want to start with you as a person and let you know that you were loved by God, that that he will forgive you and he will show you how to live in holiness. But can I just 
uh, take some time to show you why the Bible teaches what it teaches. And will you kind of stick with me in this conversation? I think if they sense that we're trying to build a relational bridge to their heart, then the chances of them returning are better. So, you know, if we start with the theological point, you know, for instance, homosexuality is a sin, then we may put the person on the defensive. And so I remember, you know, Esther was our English bulldog and uh, we had heartworm pills we were supposed to give her. And I would drop that pill in front of her and she'd walk up and she dismissed it. I mean, you could stick a pile of manure in front of her and she'll consume it, right? But a heartworm pill, God forbid. Uh, But when I would take some Hickory Farm sausage, cut it, slice a little hole in the sausage, put the pill in there, guess what? Esther would come and devour that pill. Well, I guess in some ways I'm saying, Tim, the heartworm pill represents the truth and the Hickory sausage represents the love. And you've got some churches, they're so focused on giving people hickory sausage, but they're not giving people what their heart needs, the, the, the heartworm pill. And you got other people that are so focused on giving people the heartworm pill that they can't digest it because it's so mean-spirited in the way that people present it. So I think it's important that as we share the gospel, we're looking to build bridges, not burn them. So that's a big step in my contextualization of how I'm thinking about how to present the message. But another influence, Tim, has been Mark Yarhouse. Uh, I've read several of his books and I appreciate his approach. He's a professor in psychology at Wheaton and he's the director of gender and sexuality of their institute there. Um, But he's revered both inside Tim and outside Christian circles for his research yeah. And his approach, especially relating to gender dysphoria. Some of his books uh, are Understanding Gender Dysphoria, Sexual Identity and Faith, Understanding Sexual Identity, and many more. But his writings on gender dysphoria have been especially helpful. In fact, studies show, Tim, that a quarter of Gen Zs are confused about their sexual identity. And that's pretty staggering. That also means a quarter of parents are struggling potentially with how to help their kids. That is, if their kids have informed them about what they're wrestling through. Hmm. So Yarhouse, he kind of lays out three frameworks, an integrity framework, a disability framework, and a diversity framework. And these frameworks, Tim, are ways that we sort of view the LGBTQ world. Uh, And so you have the integrity framework, and they just see things as black and white, Uh, And they only look at this through a moral lens. And that can become problematic because people don't feel like they're seen as people who are hurting and confused. But it stays true to the word in that it recognizes the context for sex. Uh, The second would be the disability framework that recognizes that everybody has disabilities, uh, straight or you know gay but with these disabilities it just acknowledges that there's something torn inside of somebody who lives within a male body yet feels like a female and then there's the diversity framework um, where you kind of got a soft side but then a real rigid side which would be hey you know what we need to overthrow all categories of traditional marriage and family. And so this is where you're seeing all these pronouns come from. Let's just celebrate diversity. And they're just trying to topple everything that we've known. Well, interestingly enough, 
Yar House shares that, you know, a lot of times in the church, we just take this through the integrity lens and we miss the opportunity to minister. He says, and I quote, can Christians who uphold the integrity lens find anything of value in the disability or diversity lenses, even if not prepared to adopt every application of them? While we have to be careful here to avoid sacrificing biblical authority in this effort, I think we can. I would say that, for example, from the disability lens, we can appreciate the compassion that is present. We can appreciate being reminded of the reality of Genesis 3, which has clear implications throughout Scripture and thus important to imply, so that a Christian perspective is characterized by compassion and empathy as people explore ways to cope with more intense gender dysphoria when it is present. And as young people find themselves drawn to emerging gender identities about which Christians may voice concern. Is there anything to be gained from the diversity lens? This is by far the most challenging lens for me as a Christian, since it is often applied by others in such a way that it dismisses male, female, sexual difference as merely oppressive and negligible. However, what the diversity lens does is create a sense of identity and community for those who suffer from gender dysphoria and for those who are part of that trans trending group. While I disagree with the answers typically offered within the diversity lens, I have to admit that it is the only lens really attempting to specifically meet the longing for identity and community for those with gender dysphoria or are otherwise under the transgender umbrella. So I like what he says there because this is why so many people with these issues are going to the LGBTQ plus community because their identity is affirmed and they have a community to belong to. While we can't affirm these multiple identities, we can affirm a broader identity that they are created in the image of God. And we can also be a place of community and love where we go on a journey with them. And so I think that we have to figure out what it looks like with people struggling from these identity issues to find a community with us in the church yet whereby we don't compromise either, but we call them up to live out Christian convictions. Uh, you're exactly right. And I've had, you know, several conversations just in the past few weeks. I mean, this is a really live issue for, you know, people that are deconstructing, people that are doubting their faith, the, them asking questions specifically about the way that the church has treated LGBTQ people and and how they have rejected them. Uh, so I, I, I'd like you to kind of talk to about that a little bit. Where do you think the church has dropped the ball in regarding to, uh, you know, all things LGBTQ? Yeah, I, I think some churches focus on the moral issue to the exclusion of the person. Hmm. So, as I said earlier, these people often leave feeling shamed without community. I next would say some churches focus on healing the person's shame to the exclusion of addressing potential moral issues. And then some churches refuse to focus at all by ignoring the issue altogether, like hoping it'll go away. And I call this a passive approach. I mean, imagine a wolf coming into a shepherd's flock. Would the shepherd turn his head? Of course not. But many pastoral shepherds are ignoring the very moral revolution that we are in the middle of without equipping their flocks on how to navigate these trying times. 
Well, in, in a second, I do want you to tell us where you think the church can do a little better. But first, I want to remind our audience that if you are doubting or you know someone who is deconstructing, you are welcome here at this channel and within this ministry and at the website, Christianity Still Makes Sense. You can check out this show as an audio-only podcast and your favorite podcast player, or you can check us out on YouTube at youtube.com slash Christianity Still Makes Sense. And resources just like this are only possible through listener support. And one great way to support this show is to just share this show with your network. So, uh, Bobby, where can churches do better? Perhaps share some things that we're working on at Image Church. Sure. Practically speaking, uh, we must not ignore the issue to pick up where the last point left off. Yeah. Um, ignoring the issue won't make it go away. Which leads to my next point. I would say we got to equip the flock. And, you know, as you're doing it with me, Tim, we're building a church called Image Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, And, you know, we're talking as a staff team what it would look like to develop in our discipleship university a course called Gender, Sexuality, and Identity. And we want to offer this course, you know, once or twice a year. Uh, And why is this? Uh, Why is that? Well, we want to create a forum for parents and kids and basically anyone to attend and ask questions. We want to open this up to the community as well. Uh, We also want parents, um, you know, they don't know what to do uh, with the situation if their kids come home and mention this. And depending upon kind of the church culture the parents come from, uh, they might, you know, operate straight out of the truth category and the kids feel shame. And we want to protect their relationship. So we want parents who have kids struggling with sexual identity issues to feel like their church is a resource. They don't have to go outside of it. We're here to have conversations with them and helping them uh, assess what their different options are. And I also just think when June comes around, this is not the time to ignore it. Uh, We should be, you know, featuring stories of people who've come out of the movement and are Christians Mm. or sharing books with our church from authors that came out of the movement or writing blogs. Uh, but we need to make sure that we don't just stay silent while our church is going to get inundated with LGBTQ plus stuff, especially in the month of June. Well, you're exactly right that we are inundated. And so I've heard you say this before, that this is probably the most difficult apologetic issue the church has ever had to address. So why is that? Oh, man, I, it is definitely. And a part of what makes this so difficult is Um, The church should be united, but the church is divided on this. And so that makes it extra challenging. And I just think Satan has really grabbed a hold of making Christians feel shamed because the LGBTQ community has pitched a message that if you do not agree with me, then you do not accept me. And so we have compromised because we're instead of challenging that narrative that Hey, we don't have to agree with you to accept you. We can accept you without agreeing you. That's what tolerance is. We can love you even though there's disagreements. And I think that we need to realize that when we're connecting with people, that there's such a bigger vision that God has for us in giving us an identity than just to lead out of our sexual identity. So, Tim, as it relates to the future of this movement, man, I would just say I don't know where this is going to go. I mean, maybe the one hope I can see is I could see the lesbian challenging the T a little bit in the transgender sports. Uh, I could see that maybe being outlawed, but the rest of it, man, I think that the worst could be yet to come. And we need to be really standing strong as Christians and even preparing our church to be a voice of truth in the midst of being potentially persecuted. Well, maybe as we as we wrap up here, give us some final thoughts on, you know, maybe even how we can stand true to that. 
I think what I would say is if I'm a mom or a dad, if you got kids that are struggling with this issue, uh, preserve the relationship. Uh, don't necessarily look at your kids for having these questions as stuck in sin. Uh, it's no wonder they're confused. I mean, look at all the messages that are coming their way. So just in a loving, compassionate way, walk them through uh, their feelings and thoughts and talk with them. Keep that open channel of relationship flowing between you and them. Uh, but don't rush to make any decision uh, with your kids when they're young and you know, letting them get sex changes and stuff like that. Encourage your church to be a support system to walk with you through it. And in the end, hopefully, as you're lovingly and in truth speaking the message out, your child will come around. But even if your child doesn't, just rest in the Lord, trust in the Lord, and continue to show love to your kid. That's what they really need to know, that you love them unconditionally. Well, I, I continue to pray that more uh, pastors and churches continue to change from that strong integrity model that Yar House was talking about that you so eloquently put and, and move into kind of some of those other different models that he was talking about. I think he's a great resource for that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the, But again, to our audience, this isn't the first subject where Bobby has changed his views uh, from, you know, kind of that hard integrity model. So we'd invite you to check out episode 83 of The Unapologetic Show to hear three more. And with that, we'll meet you next time on Christianity Still Makes Sense. Thank you for checking out this episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense. This show is just one of the many resources available to those who are doubting their Christian faith. You can also find others at ChristianityStillMakesSense.com. This is a listener-supported show, and your gift of any amount helps shows like this continue. Click on the donate link on our website. Also, catch Bobby on Pastor's Perspective, where he answers your questions. Finally, if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to click subscribe and check out our other videos on the channel. This show is sponsored by K-Wave and Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa.